We're going to look this morning at a couple of verses from Mark chapter 1. And these verses tie in around the, the, the uh, baptism of Jesus. It's actually quite interesting when you look at what the Bible tells us about the baptism of Jesus. Mark, for example, describes it in one verse. Uh, verse 9, in those days, days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, Luke basically does much the same. Uh, now, when, in uh, Luke chapter 3, 21, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens uh, were opened and that's about as much as, as Luke says about it. Matthew tells us a, a wee bit more in Matthew chapter 3 and in uh, verse 13. Uh, he tells us then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by him. And then he adds this wee detail, and John would have prevented him saying, uh, look, I need to be baptized by you and, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Um, John in his gospel, he, he hints at the, the baptism of Jesus. But even though very few verses of Scripture are devoted to this historical event, it is one which is full of meaning and full of significance for us today. And what I want to do with you this morning uh, is to look at what happened um, when the, the act of baptizing Jesus was uh, complete. Uh, and, and we're going to look today basically at um, verses 10 and 11. And when you begin to think about those two verses and what they tell us, you realize that following Jesus' baptism, something happened which those who witnessed it were unlikely ever to forget. There, there was the, the spectacular nature of the event itself. There was the, the very clear involvement of all three members, all three persons of the Trinity. And then at the, at the very end, you have this statement in verse 11, made about Jesus by God himself. And following, and, and, and wrapped up within it all, there is, a, there is a great word of encouragement for us. So let's start looking at, at these verses today. Let's go to verse, to verse 10. And we want to read 10 and 11 first of all. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The first thing that we see about the baptism of Jesus or immediately following the baptism of Jesus is that it was what we could call a Trinitarian moment, a Trinitarian event. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, submitted to baptism. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, descends on Jesus just after he is baptized. 
and the Father, the, the first person of the Trinity, causes the heavens to be opened and speaks audibly about Jesus. Now, you're looking here at one of the clear evidences in Scripture of the, the fact that the one true God is a, is a trinity of persons. He is one in his divine nature, but he is three in person. The Father, the, the, the Son, the Holy Spirit are equally God, each possessing everything that is essential to being God. We learned that as children, and we may not have realized the significance of, of what we were memorizing. Shorter Catechism, question five says, is there more than one God? The answer there is one only, the living and true God. And then question six says, how many persons are there in the one God? And the answer comes, three persons are in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. Of course, we need to remember that, that while that definition is, is helpful, it doesn't give us a, a full understanding of the triune God. We can know certain things about God because God makes them known to us, but we can't know everything there is to know about God. We simply can't know God as he, as he knows himself. You may have heard Burke Parsons speak. You may have heard him speak online. I heard him speak live in Belfast once. And here's what he writes. Because God transcends the limits of our creaturely minds, we cannot fully understand him. It is a necessary facet of his greatness and we should be overwhelmed by God's greatness whenever we think on the Trinity. So, what do we read here? Again, go back to the beginning of verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. John Calvin, in his commentary, writes that the, the opening of the heavens is, is a manifestation, a, a a demonstration of heavenly glory. It is a symbol of God's presence. Uh, Steve Wilmerston, his commentary writes that uh, heaven is opened to show that God is breaking through, that God is intervening in human history in a new way. Now, there's a reference in the Old Testament to God opening the heavens. In, in Isaiah 64 and uh, in, in verse 1, what do we read there? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Now, Isaiah pleads with God not just to look down from heaven, but to tear the heavens apart, to make his presence unmistakably clear. Now, in in, in, in the context in which he was speaking, Isaiah was asking for God to, to, to come and to, to judge his enemies. But here at the baptism of Jesus, <clears throat> God tears the heavens open to make it clear that he has come in the person of Jesus to secure the salvation of his people. 
Then, if you work your way on through uh, verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, to our modern mind, the idea of a dove can, can lead us to imagine that the Holy Spirit is some sort of a, a weakling, so, so gentle, so harmless, so timid, you know, a, a person who really has no power at all. But the description of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is of a person of power. It is through the person of the Holy Spirit, it is through the Spirit's power that our great triune God makes things happen. The Bible tells us that, that once the Spirit moves, things follow, action follows. In Psalm 104, and um, in verse 30, um, actually, if you read from uh, verse 29, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. God's Holy Spirit gives new life. The very first mention of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. We read there, Now the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. There was a headline, was it the beginning of this week, where NASA's latest uh, space telescope has shown us um, images that go right back to the very origin of the universe. Well, we didn't need a space telescope to tell us how the universe originated. In fact, it hasn't been able to tell us how the universe originated because Apparently, the images are not as old as, as they are. They're only a reflection of what it was like back all those years ago that they're talking about or claim to be talking about. But we have the description of how the universe came into being in Genesis chapter 1. And, and we see that at that point, in his, the Holy Spirit's mighty, unlimited power creates everything out of nothing. He is, he is brooding over the waters ready to bring life to the whole universe. Now, the, the significance of all this is, is brought out by Alan Cole in, in his commentary. He says, as in the book of Genesis, God created by his word and through the Spirit, it is fitting that at the very commencement of God's work of recreation, there should be the same operation of the whole Godhead. Here on Jordan's banks, God speaks his word again, and the Spirit is brooding over the waters. Now, of course, Jesus had the Holy Spirit from uh, before the creation of the world, from all eternity. 
he had the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, endlessly and, and eternity, eternally. And when he came into the world, he took on a second nature. He took on a human nature. And it was in his human nature that he acted while he was on earth. It was in his human nature that he offered himself as a sacrifice for his people's sin. And, and the visible coming down of the Holy Spirit on Jesus at baptism was to demonstrate that as a human being, Jesus was empowered with the mighty power of the God who created the universe. What, what Jesus is going to do as a man is going to be no less effective than what he does as God. Indeed, the, the, the significance of the um, Holy Spirit being seen to come upon the promised Messiah is uh, something that the Old Testament very clearly explains in, in Isaiah chapter 61 and in, in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring to good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And it was that verse that Jesus applied to himself at the beginning of his ministry. The Holy Spirit anointed, equipped, empowered the Messiah to carry out the mission of redeeming his people, which had been given to him by his Father. Now, because of that, we can have absolute assurance that his perfect life, that his substitutionary death on the cross is sufficient to remove the guilt of our sin before God. Sufficient to clothe us in the righteousness which we need if God is going to accept us. You can have absolute confidence that what Jesus did to secure your salvation has done so both completely and forever. Then if you go down into verse 11, you see here a, a unique statement that's made about Jesus. And the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. Now the Greek word that's used here for beloved is agapetos. It's used to speak of the, the intense and undivided love which a father has for his only child. And again in scripture, the father's love for the son is emphasized. If you go to um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, go to the first chapter, and we'll just read verses 4, 5, and 6. End of verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
And then look at this. With which he has blessed us in who? In the beloved. From the Father's point of view, Jesus is the beloved. And so just immediately after his baptism, it's as if the Father is saying, look, here is my son. Here is the one who has been with me from eternity. Here is the one who has my divine nature. I am publicly setting my son before you. I have loved him more dearly than anyone or anything. In this very public act, we see the father expressing his intense love for his only son whom he has sent to save his people from their sin. And we again can be absolutely assured that if the father loved the son to this extent, then what he sent him to do is something which he accomplished completely and entirely. Look how verse 11 goes on. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Not only does the Father say, This is my beloved Son. He also says, With you, with him, I am well pleased. The second part of the statement expresses God's pleasure, God's complete satisfaction with Jesus. Now, those people who were standing at the Jordan that day, who were there that day, they heard God say something about a human being that God had never said about any human being since before Adam's fall into sin. Prior to Adam's disobedience, prior to Adam's sin, God could, could look at, at Adam, he could look at the rest of creation, and as he put it in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, that word means take note, pay attention, listen up, it was very good. Now, for the first time since then, God is looking at a human being on earth and God is able to say, with you, I am well pleased. Jesus is the man without sin. Everything about him pleases God. God, God, God looks at him and God sees in him his own righteousness. You see where all this is going here? Do you see what those people were hearing? What God was revealing to those people that day about Jesus, the Messiah? Here is the one who can meet every demand of God that we cannot meet. And he does it for us, and he does it on our behalf. 
Again, do you see how God offers to us complete and full salvation in Jesus? And then thirdly, there is a word of encouragement here. Now, to see that word of encouragement, we need to go back to uh, the beginning of verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, we have just been looking here at the public unveiling of the Messiah, God in human flesh. Here is the one who has been promised for centuries. Here is a unique, a magnificent person. And, and if those uh, people standing beside and around the Jordan that day ha had fully grasped the significance of the statement that God was making, they would have begun to realize this is the one in whom all the promises of God's salvation are wrapped up. This is the one whom God has promised since Genesis chapter 3. And here he is, this glorious, magnificent person. He's in our presence. Only if you had been alive in the first century A.D., you might have had a bit of a problem with something. Where did he come from? He came from Nazareth. And, and you would have had great difficulty making the connection between the Messiah and Nazareth. For Nazareth didn't count. It wasn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. Now the second person of the Trinity, God in, in human flesh, the Messiah, he couldn't possibly come from Nazareth. Maybe Jerusalem, somewhere, you know, somewhere, somewhere big, somewhere in the front line. Uh, uh, maybe Bethlehem. Yeah, Bethlehem, that's what's stated in the Scriptures. Or maybe somewhere identified with some of God's mighty acts in the past. But definitely not from Nazareth. No way. That is not the right background. Nothing to do with God's mighty acts, God's revealing of his grand plan of salvation. No, Nazareth, no, definitely not. It's not the right background at all. Donald English explains why. He says it's not that it was a particularly wicked place. It was simply unheard of. Never mentioned in the Old Testament nor in those other Jewish sources where you might expect to read of the Messiah's home. It was nowhere. It was nothing. But where did God plan that the Messiah should spend his childhood and early adulthood? In Nazareth. 
What's, what's the point here? What's that got to do with us today? Simply this. God doesn't go looking for the big names. He doesn't go looking for the most important people. He doesn't go looking for the likely candidates when he chooses those whom he's going to save. Maybe what I've been saying about Jesus today, you've known that. You've known it for years. But maybe there's one thing that might be keeping you from accepting God's promises of salvation and, and believing that they are for you. And that is that you've, you've convinced yourself that you're either too insignificant for God to bother about you, you know too little about the Bible for God to be interested in you, or that your condition of sinfulness in, in, in general is simply too bad or too great for God to pardon. The fact that Jesus came from Nazareth shows us that God is willing to go to the lowest of sinners. And if you're sitting in church today and you're thinking to yourself, I'm, I'm the lowest of sinners, I'm the worst of sinners. Let me tell you, there was somebody else who knew exactly how you are feeling today. Go to 1 Timothy. Go to chapter 1. Go to verse 15. Words written, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, written down by the Apostle Paul, the greatest teacher that the New Testament church has ever known. And listen to what he says. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul knew what it feels like to know how serious your sin is. But he also knew that Jesus came in to the world to save sinners and he rejoiced in God's great salvation. No matter how bad your opinion or perhaps maybe your quite reasonable, logical, accurate understanding of yourself is, Jesus is able to save you. And don't give up seeking his salvation until you find it as he makes it personally real to you. But maybe you are a Christian today and you would really love to do something for God. But you're a Nazareth. I mean, you have nothing going for you, you think. Nothing that could be of any use for the Lord here or anywhere else for that matter. But remember, God chose the unlikely town of Nazareth as the place where the Messiah would grow up. And God chooses people 
who sometimes, maybe to themselves or to others, seem the most unlikely to do his work in his church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we read this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. So that no human being might boast in the presence of of God. Donald English says this, as Christians at times we may feel useless to God and we will always be right in that judgment. But equally, we are wrong to assume that because of our limitations, God will not use us. Whoever we are, and however partial our knowledge and ability, God can use us. You see, our usefulness to the Lord doesn't depend on who we are or, or, or what we are, but it depends on what God chooses to do with us. And God can take you. And God can use you in this congregation. He can use you in his church. He can use you to his glory. Isaiah heard him say, who will I send? Who will, who will go for us? Isaiah knew he was a sinner. Knew very clearly that he was a sinner. But he also knew that God had redeemed him from his sin. And he says, okay, Lord, here am I. Send me. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is <clears throat> the second person of the Trinity. We thank you that he is the only Savior whom you, the living and true God, have ordained to save his people from their sin. And we thank you, Father, that it was sinners he came to save. Those who know that in and of themselves they have no good thing to commend themselves to God, but that Jesus must do it all for them. We thank you for his work, completed, finished, perfect. And we thank you, Lord, that you take people you take us as we are with all our, our weaknesses and with all our imperfections and you use us to your glory in your service for the work that you have purposed to accomplish through your people on earth. Lord, today, maybe we need to hear the Spirit calling us to faith in Jesus. Maybe we need to hear has called convincing us that we can be useful to you 
Father, give us grace to respond in obedience. For we ask this in his name. Amen.